Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi, F-E-M-I, and I'm one of the elders here. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke. We'll be reading from chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. This is found on page 1577 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And thanks to the worship team. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. This is my lost and found water bottle, if it's yours. It does have a last name on the bottom of it, so I'll know, I'll know if you're lying. <laughs> it's right there. A couple things about uh, this passage. Um, one, uh, this passage contains one of the most overt, apparent contradictions in the entire Bible. So uh, this passage says to take a staff with you, or not to take a staff with you, and in Mark's gospel, the exact same situation, Jesus says take a staff. And so it's like the closest thing to like an actual contradiction I've ever found in the Bible in 20 years of studying it. To explain to you why it's not a contradiction, why its existence should actually encourage your faith, would take me about 24 minutes-ish to explain. So I, (laughs) go ahead. So uh, I actually put it in a blog, and it's on the Engage and Equip blog. So hpcmadison.com. You can get there off the website, so go to our website um, and read that, and you'll find it, I think, helpful and encouraging. But I'm not going to spend that time. I was writing the sermon, I was like, I just can't do this in the sermon. So if you struggle with the authority of Scripture, 
um, and need a little support in that, that would, I think, be a good thing for you to read. Secondly, I've been talking about why I'm preaching larger portions of the gospel of Luke, because I've said that, um, you know, there's themes that run through chapters, and my hope is, is that you're going to read the Bible on your own. And I don't, I say this some, I should say this more. There's a certain kind of Christian growth that only comes when you read the Bible for yourself. There's no other way that I know of for it to happen. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can take the one in the pew with you. And, um, but a majority of people say, coming from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus, the majority of people say that there's a person that makes the difference. Somebody that, a Christian they don't hate, that doesn't live up to all the bad press about Christians, and they're like, oh, that person's kind of interesting, and then that person helps lead them to Christ. But they say that the huge growth that comes from believing in Jesus to being a devoted follower of Jesus is they start to read the Bible for themselves. And Luke 9 breaks down into like six daily readings really easily. And so I'm going to kind of go through the whole chapter. Um, In two weeks, Lloyd's going to drill down a little bit further on on one of the later passages. Um, But I'd really encourage you to like take a Bible, read a little bit every day, and read for the purpose of increasing your devotion. Like whatever you do, do it for the purpose of increasing your devotion. Okay, great. So, all right. So it's pretty well known that for most people, most people go through at least one awkward phase. For some people, it's right when they're born. So one of the things that we teach in the pastoral internship here at High Point is, the, is um, a pastoral skill called gonna be, where you learn to say gonna be really, 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 really fast. So it goes like this. A, child, a, a person in the church brings their newborn baby, and they say, hey, this is Alicia, right? And you say, oh, she's gonna be really cute. Except once you're seasoned in the pastoral, like, skill, it sounds like this. I slowed it way down for you, okay? So the, it sounds like this if you hear it in the lobby. Oh, she's so cute. So that's what it sounds like. It takes practice. You won't get it right the first time, but a lot of babies are, you know, they're a little awkward. My brother um, said one time that I'm in my 30th year of my awkward phase, and we'll see how that goes. But for most people, For most people, the awkward phase is like adolescence. It is like sixth grade to ninth grade. Okay, so public service announcement here. And some people, okay, listen, some of you will be sensitive about this because some of you are depressed and you've you've struggled with thoughts of suicide. And I say this like as a positive public service announcement, okay? Seventh and eighth grade were the worst years of my life. Something like the majority of the population, they are the worst years of your life, okay? Just hang in there. You'll get through them, okay? Your body will catch up with you like— You'll have new friends. You'll get to leave school in a few years and go to a college, and nobody will know how they're supposed to treat you. And people are animals at those ages, okay? All those people around you treating you terrible, it's because they're terrible. They're animals. They have no idea who they are. They have no idea who you are. They're treating you terribly, okay? You are being abused by humanity, and just hang in there. It's part of life because awkward phases are part of maturing, Like, it just sort of happens with human beings that sometimes you just mature in one way, and you're not really maturing in another way, and it really gets you off. So for, like, for girls in that phase, oftentimes they'll kind of, like, blossom physically, but they'll still carry, like, you know, somewhere between 5 and 13 pounds of fat they don't want, and, like, 6 of it is in their face. And they just, like, they just hate—they just hate it, right? And they—their hair changes, and they don't know what to do with their hair, and you have, like, a lot of them have braces at this point in your life. You're just like, ugh, right? And then you've got— 
boys, and for boys, it's like they just grow long with no muscles. You know, it's just these lanky, lurching things. It's like if you've ever watched an eighth grade basketball game with like whatever boy is the forward, you know, he's trying to get a rebound, but he can't catch because his arms are so long he can't actually manipulate them yet. And so the ball goes flying, and like the shortest kid is the best. Like if you want to watch a basketball game where the shortest kid is the best, seventh and eighth grade, that is where you go. Because like the little guy that didn't really grow, he's super coordinated. He's like— and then there's like the tall people are like, they can't walk. It's like the first time a model tries to go down the runway. Anyway, sorry you were laughing, so I kind of went with that one. So the point is, is that um, it looks weird, okay? Like people don't like being at that stage of life, and it feels wrong. It feels like your body shouldn't be like this. And a lot of kids, like, man, you talk to kids in that age group, and a lot of them hate their bodies, and they hate their life because they hate their bodies. And it's a really, really difficult time. And it's because part of the nature of an awkward phase is—sorry, one of the jokes is babies aren't as cute as baby skunks. And then the second is that an awkward phase is basically rapid growth that isn't mature growth. And it produces, like, it just looks wrong, and it can be troubling. And yet, it's easy for, like, an eighth-grade girl or boy to think— there's something wrong with me, when there's nothing wrong with them, right? And the reason why I say this is because a lot of times in people's faith, um, they try to come to Jesus, or they believe in Jesus, and they consider themselves a Christian, and they feel like they're growing in their faith, and they get to a point where they get really puzzled and stumped and frustrated. They feel like they've grown a good bit, but they actually feel like their faith isn't working. They feel like there's something wrong. They feel like it doesn't really fit into their real life, and, and they don't really know why, and it's really frustrating, and a lot of people are very tempted to give up on their faith, and a lot of people do. And, or they think that there must be something wrong with Jesus, or the gospel, or the scriptures, and it really isn't any of those things. What it really is, is that their faith has entered like a sort of awkward phase. And if you stay in that awkward phase, after a while, it is a problem. But if you go through the process of maturing, you go through the awkward phase with all the difficulty and fear and frustration of it, and you mature. And then you're doing a lot better. And this passage, this chapter in Luke, Jesus is sort of intentionally creating an awkward face for the disciples and then trying to take them through it. And for the disciples, they haven't reached the end of the book. I mean, spoiler alert if you haven't read the Bible. The way Luke ends is Jesus dies and then he rises from the dead, right? And so for a lot of people, if you grew up in like a Christian home, for you, you were like, you were told that story when somebody rising from the dead didn't seem all that weird. Like, mommy tells me Jesus, you're like, you're like, so you're like four, and your mom was, and then Jesus died, and then he rose from the dead, and you're like, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Why can't people rise from the dead? Like, you believe in fairies, and like, there's just like nothing counterintuitive about that. And so you have to like learn later that death is a big deal, because you don't understand that. And then, you, so for some of us, we've just kind of grown up, and it's, it hasn't really astounded us. And so, we know the end from the beginning, and so we can't ever go through the process of misunderstanding. But one of the ways that God teaches is he teaches things in their proper order. That's one of the things that can be difficult in modern education is people get frustrated with, with certain institutions. It's not because they don't want certain things taught. It's they want things taught in a certain order, right? Teaching like kids about birth control devices before you teach them about what a man and a woman is, like that's out of order, right? And people get frustrated even though they're okay with a lot of things being taught. 
right? And so God, like, for example, you go back to Genesis. The first lesson God teaches the man and woman is they're going to have to trust him. Here's a tree. Don't eat off of that. You can eat off of anything else. You have a hundred options to enjoy, but there's this one tree you can't eat on. I'm not telling you why. You're going to have to trust me, right? Because the first lesson is faith, and you can't build any lesson with a human being understanding God until that lesson is in place. If you teach any lesson about God before people learn the lesson of faith, that lesson will break them because it's not in the right order. Do you understand? And so Jesus has spent the whole first part of the book of Luke teaching a certain order. He's saying, look, I, want, I care about you, and I want to bring healing and redemption into your life. And it's going to be on the basis of a way of life or a way of being called the kingdom of God. And so for the first eight chapters of the book of Luke, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, and he's healing people, and he's freeing people from possession. Okay? So he's, he's dealing with physical ailments. He's dealing with mental illness. He's dealing with possession. He's dealing with all kinds of things that break people's lives. And he's saying, we're going to do it in relationship to this way of being of peace and justice called the kingdom of God. Okay? And so the disciples are understanding this. Some of the other people are understanding this. And he gets to the point where he wants the, the apostles to grow. Now the word apostle comes from the word apostolos. They sound pretty similar, right? Apostolos is a Greek word that just means somebody who's sent. Okay? So the, these 12 people have been designated apostles, and they've never been sent anywhere. Do you see the problem? It's like, I'm an athlete. I've never exercised. You know what I mean? Like, like something's got to give if these people are going to be apostles. So Jesus has to send them, and so he decides it's time to send them. They know enough, right? They've seen him do miracles. They've heard him preaching about the kingdom. They know some stuff. Send them out there. So he gives them authority and power to do the miracles. He tells them what to do. Go heal people, deliver them from demons, and preach the kingdom. That's what he says. And then he tells them to do it a certain way, right? Go into a certain town. If somebody welcomes you, you stay there. Don't try to move up the social ladder. You stay put. Have some humility. And if people don't believe, you don't try to hurt them, but you do testify that their rejection is going to cost them something, and they should be very serious about that. So you dust the feet off and that, that thing, right? But here's the thing. They come back, and they tell Jesus what happened, and they're all excited, right? They're like, Jesus, it totally worked. In fact, it's so successful that King Herod hears about it, and everybody's like, I think Moses is alive or something. They're like, John's like alive from the dead, or maybe Elijah's here. I mean, people are really excited. There's, I mean, it, it's, there's more notoriety than when Jesus was doing it, because there's just, there's 12 guys doing it instead of one, right? And Herod Antipas is like, what's going on? And so then he runs into them. He's like, let's go talk about this. And so he tries to take them away to go talk about what's happened. People show up, and Jesus welcomes them. And then it says, he teaches them about the kingdom of God, and he heals their sick, right? Now, here's the problem with that. If you believe that much, you would believe that following God and knowing Christ is essentially an issue of miracles and morality. That's the gospel you would believe in. The gospel of miracles and morality. You'd believe in God's goodwill towards you. You'd believe that God wants to do good things in your life. That God might do those things miraculously. And that if you believe in God, you should come into a certain understanding of how you should behave and act according to this thing called the kingdom of God. And you should behave a certain way. And that would be the message you believe in. God will do miraculous things on your behalf, and you should behave in a certain way in response. Right? And the problem is, is that that would not be enough for you to become mature. That's just enough gospel to destroy you. 
But it's necessary to get those two things straight to learn more. You have, before you can learn the next step, you got to basically believe that God is morally serious, that he believes in peace and justice, that he doesn't just go, oh, do whatever you want. Like, you've got to believe in a, a supremely morally serious God, that the God who is going to be loving and therapeutic and healing is morally serious. Okay, there's no way around that. And that God is loving in that he wants to be healing towards you. He has an enormous amount of goodwill towards you, and he's extremely morally serious, and the relationship between those two is going to have to get sorted out, right? And so you're encouraged to repentance and faith, right? I believe. I'll let go of the things that I've done wrong. I'll walk in this thing called the kingdom, and I'll receive your miraculous healing and forgiveness, right? Okay. Great. Now, here's the problem. That's not going to do it. That's just going to make you lanky spiritually. That's going to make you an eighth grade basketball center, is what that's going to do. Okay, and so in this chapter, what Jesus says is, you need to grow in those things, but if you don't mature out with something else, you will not understand the gospel. You don't know what it'll mean to follow Christ, and it will ruin you. It will ruin you in the end, right? And you see, in the gospels, people who don't understand this next lesson don't stay with Jesus. And I would want to argue with you that if you are here and you believe in those first two things, the miraculous God and the moral God, and you don't learn this next lesson and you don't fill out your faith, you will very likely walk away from Jesus. You will not persevere to the end. And you will not experience everything God has for you in his loving, healing, virtuous beauty to be formed in you. Okay? And that is this. That Jesus— kingdom of God or the gospel, none of that makes sense apart from death and resurrection. None of it makes sense apart. If you don't understand the fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then the dynamic of death and resurrection in everything in the Christian life, you can't understand Jesus. The gospel will make no sense to you, and you will hate the thing that is the kingdom of God. And you'll read the Bible, and none of it will really make sense. It'll all sound like moralistic claptrap that isn't connected with reality, and it'll just bother you, and you'll be, you'll be like, I tried that. It didn't work. That's what'll happen. Okay, now, let me, let's look at that, this from three angles. One is that the kingdom of God is about death and resurrection, because Jesus is not just about miracles and morality. So if you look at it this way, if you look at Luke 9, Jesus specifically, Luke specifically refers to the kingdom of God and the gospel three times early on so that you and I would know that this is about the definition of what the kingdom of God and what the gospel is and what Jesus is. Now, you might have, you might have been to places or churches or seen people talk about the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God is bringing real justice into the world, in society, in such a way as to produce peace. And that's what the kingdom of God is. That's what Jesus is talking about in the Bible. That sounds really nice, and I would love for a political party to, like, get that in their platform somehow in some way, but that is not what the Bible means by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, and to the extent to which it relates to Jesus, Jesus is himself the kingdom of God among us. That's why in Luke 4 he could say, um, he reads the prophet Isaiah, he says the the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the poor will hear the good news. And then he says, these things have been fulfilled today in your hearing. They're done. They're completed right now as you listen. But they're not. There were sick people, poor people, 
all over the place that hadn't heard the good news. There were sick people that hadn't been healed all over Israel. It hadn't been fulfilled, but Jesus is himself presently the kingdom. He is the kingdom. He is, he is himself the good news, and he is himself the Savior, and where he is, the kingdom is. That's where what Jesus could say, if I've done all these things, then the kingdom of God is already among you. Some translations have translated that within you. That's not the correct translation. It is among you, meaning Jesus is saying, you look around and you don't see the full kingdom, but you see all the evidences of what the kingdom is supposed to be, and I'm here. The kingdom is among you because I'm here, right? And so he says, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, verse 2. And then it says, as they're out proclaiming the kingdom of God in verse 6, it says, so they set out from village to village proclaiming the good news or the gospel, right? Which is the same thing in this context. And then in verse 11, it says, when they came to him, he says, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those needing healing. Okay, now, so up until that point in the passage, what's happening is people are hearing the good news of the kingdom and people are getting healed. And that's all happening. And then there comes this point, there's 5,000 people, and the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, there's a lot of people here. They don't have food. You should send them away because they'll listen to you to go get food and find a place to stay. And he says to them, you give them something to eat. And they say, right, they say, right, that's right, Jesus. That makes perfect sense. We've been doing all these miraculous things. You gave us power and authority to do miracles. Why is making more bread any more difficult than casting out a demon? Right? That's not what they said, is it? They said, Jesus— Let's be realistic. We've got five loaves and two fish, and there's all these people, and we don't have enough money to even buy the food, even if we went out to buy it. Do you see the problem? Like, they could go so far and no farther, right? And here's one of the reasons why they couldn't go any farther, because God had given people in the desert only once in human history. One, there's only one person ever in the history of the world that gave people bread in the desert. Moses, the covenant creator the great steward over all God's household, the God through whom God brought 10 plagues on the greatest empire of the ancient world. Okay, this, this guy Moses was not just a prophet. Like, he was God's right-hand man. He's the only guy who's ever given anybody bread in the desert. You, you, being a prophet isn't enough to give people bread in the desert. You have to be a covenant maker. You have to be basically God himself, right? And so Jesus says, seat everybody down, bring me the bread, he breaks it up, and it, it says a very specific thing when Jesus says this. It's very specific. He says, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. Okay, that phrase is only used twice in the Bible. I should say it this way. It's only used in two places in the Bible. And the other Gospels where this episode is talked about, they use the same language. But the only other place in the story of Jesus where that phrase is used is the Last Supper when Jesus is literally instituting a new covenant, like Moses. And he says that he, the reason he breaks the bread is to show that the new covenant comes in through the breaking of his body, right? And it says that he broke the bread, he breaks it, and then he gives it to them to distribute. Jesus does the breaking, and when they're done, Luke inserts this word, and they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. You see the point? 
The point is, is before Jesus even mentions explicitly that everything revolves around his death and resurrection, that that will start a new covenant and that he is a second and greater Moses. He starts with a picture of breaking the bread and feeding 5,000, where the two come together. God's goodwill in healing and miraculous work and the nature of the peace of the kingdom of God gives everybody exactly what they need within the breaking of the bread, pointing towards the future breaking that would create a new covenant through Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's at that moment, it's after, it's after that event. Now think about this. It's after that event that Peter says, you're the Christ. Before that, Jesus had raised somebody from the dead, and they, they still didn't know he was the Christ. He'd done so— demons cast out of people, the blind here, the poor good news. I mean, I, all kinds of things so that Jesus could prove to John that, hey, don't you think I'm the Messiah? And, but it's after this for Luke, at least, he says, after this feeding of the 5,000, they, they were saying, okay, people say Elijah or a prophet or John has come back from the dead. But Jesus says, okay, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You are the second Moses. You are the great Savior who's to come, right? And then Jesus says, that's right. But then he says this very quickly. He says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, must be killed, and on the third day raised to life. He explicitly talks about death and resurrection. He says, listen, you cannot understand me being the Christ without understanding that I'm going to die and rise. I'm going to be hated, rejected, killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. You need to understand that, right? And they don't understand that. And so the very next thing is what? So after that, they go up, and it's the transfiguration. Right? So they go up on this small mountain, and it's just Jesus and a couple of his disciples, and it says that his, his clothing becomes so white, whiter than anybody could bleach it, and that Elijah and Moses are there, right? What's the, po what's the point of that? Well, he just said, some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power, right? These two are literally experiencing it right after that, so there's a fulfillment to that statement, but it's more than that, because twice already in this passage, Elijah has been mentioned. When the disciples, the apostles are doing miracles, people are saying, hey, is John back from the dead? Or is maybe Elijah, has he come? Or is it one of the great prophets of long ago? Now listen, if it's a great prophet of long ago and it's not Elijah, who is it? Right? Right, so the theoretically it could be Elisha. Maybe Isaiah, but probably Moses. Right? If it's a great prophet from long ago, that's probably Moses. Right? So people are already thinking this. And then when the, in the confession of Christ, they say, Jesus says, who do the people say I am? And they say, they, th they think you're John or a prophet, one of the prophets, or Elijah. And Jesus says, okay, who am I? And they're like, you're the Christ. And then he goes up on the mountain, and there is Elijah and Moses. Now think about this. When the people saw Jesus and what he did, they all thought backwards. Right? Jesus shows up, and he seems to be this great prophet, and they think backwards in time. They think, oh, John's come back to life, or maybe Elijah has returned, or maybe one of the prophets of long ago has shown up, right? Well, Elijah did show up, and one of the prophets of long ago, and they're having a conversation. And what are they talking about? I can't tell you how many times I've read the Gospel of Luke, and until I focused on that this week as I was saying this, I just didn't—I didn't pick it up quite this way, right? He says, Then two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared. This is verse 30 appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. What did they talk about? They spoke about his departure, which 
he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. You see, see what's happening here? So all the people are looking back to what God did in the past. Moses and Elijah believe that all the stuff they did in the past is finally coming to fruition. They're not looking backwards. They're looking forward. They're like, everything we did is about to finally come to its fulfillment in somebody better and greater than me. Jesus, Jesus is a prophet from long ago. He's the one that fulfills all of the prophets from long ago. He's the one who comes into the present and only in his departure that he's about to fulfill in Jerusalem. That's what they talked about. There's a lot of stuff they could have talked about. Moses could have been like, Jesus, being a prophet's tough, right? Or, you know, like, and think about this. Both Elijah and Moses had experienced functional and metaphorical deaths and resurrections in their ministries, right? Moses a number of times wants to die. He's like, God, I can't leave these people. They're crazy. They're never gonna do what you say, like, and, and God gives him some kind of grace, some kind of help, and he rises up and leads the people. There's a point where Elijah literally says, I, nobody follows you, God. I want to die, and he's completely lost. He feels dead, and he wants to die, and God gives him food, and he whispers to him that he's wrong, He's like, there's a lot of people that love me. You need to do your job. And he, and he encourages Elijah, and he lifts him up, and it's almost like he rises from the dead, and he walks back into his ministry, and he does what he's called to do. And Jesus literally fulfills his ministry through a literal death and resurrection. His departure that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. And then he comes down off the mountain, and the disciples, they've realized he's the Christ. Now think about this. They've realized he's the Christ, and now they have regressed spiritually. They've regressed. They haven't progressed. They've regressed. Because he comes down on the mountain. All the rest of the disciples are there. There's 10 of them, okay? And there's this guy whose child has a demon, and they've already done countless exorcisms. And they come up to this boy, and they can't do it. And they're like, Jesus, my son—he's like, Jesus, my son is possessed, and your, your, your apostles couldn't do anything. And, and Jesus' response is, oh, what? Unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I stay with you? right? You won't believe, and you won't believe because you're wicked. How long do I put up with this, right? And then he heals the boy. Now, in the other synoptic gospels, like Matthew and Mark, there's this conversation about, is this a different kind of demon with a different level of authority that that you couldn't cast out without prayer or whatever? But Luke doesn't mention any of that because that's not the focus of why he's telling the story here. The point is, they had already cast out demons, and they couldn't do this. They've regressed instead of progressed, as Jesus is displaying that it is through death and resurrection that the power of the gospel happens, that the power of the kingdom comes, that you can really know and follow Jesus. They are losing faith, and they can't cast out this demon. And Jesus is like, what the heck, guys? And then he says something very specific. While everyone was marveling at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. I.e., I am going to die. Okay? And so it's, it's really important to recognize— that if you and I want to get out of the gangly stage, so to speak, of faith, where we just, we look to God to do something miraculous in our life, we try to like do what we're supposed to do, and we think that that's pretty much what Christian religion is, and we wonder why that doesn't really work. It doesn't really affect our problems deeply. It really doesn't heal things that are deep breaks and brokenness in us, and that we have trouble really believing. It's because Jesus says, look, you can't get this unless the way you put together 
his moral seriousness and his miraculous will to really heal you is if you understand it all functions on the basis of death and resurrection. If you don't understand it happens on the basis of death and resurrection, you cannot experience the power, the joy, the peace, the strength, or the transformation of how God changes and saves people. Okay, now, the second thing then is that we'll look at is that gospel faith is about death and resurrection. Faith isn't just about miracles and morals. One way to think about that is something like this. It's easy to think that the message of the gospel is the way of sin is death, the way of Jesus is life, and you should choose life. And if you do, it'll be great. And God wants to heal you and love you and do miracles in your life, and he wants you to follow him morally as well, and, and, the, and that's great. And here's, a, here's, a, here's why that is so poisonous, okay? It's so poisonous because it's absolutely right, okay? It's absolutely right. And if you believe that, that way, and you don't believe any more, it'll destroy you. Okay, and here's why your sinful nature and the world and devils will have a field day with that truth, okay? Because experientially, here's what happens. James says sin comes from our desires, right? Our desires come up in us, and we want to do things. Those things are against what Scripture teaches, so they're called sin, but we desire them, right? And so that we call that temptation, okay? Now what temptation says is if we go in that direction, that direction is going to bring about life. And it's going to paint the picture for us. Be like, that's what we want. That'll make us happy. I'll be happy if I do this. I'll feel fulfilled if I do this. I'll find pleasure if I do this. And so in our experience and in our emotions, this path is painted as a path of life. And God says it's a path of death. But in our minds, it's painted like a path of life, right? And Jesus says, listen, that is a path of death, right? And then you look at it emotionally and experientially, which is basically how people look at things, and it looks pretty. Okay, when I got this from— uh, oh, so this is what that's based on, obviously, that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to die daily. Not just once when you believe in Jesus, but he says you're going to have to deny yourself, meaning your sinful desires, take up your cross daily, that's dying, and you do that following Jesus, right? So I got this from a movie— um, that's obviously from uh, the, the Beauty and the Beast, right? When, like, the dad is going, and there's, like, two paths, and one is, like, nice and lit, and the other looks terrible, and the guy's like, I think we should go down the terrible one, and the horse is like, I don't think so, right? There's, like, two paths, and they look really different, okay? And so the path of sin, though Jesus says it's the way of death, looks really bright because your desires tell you it's the way of life. All of your feelings, all of the temptations say, this is going to be great. If we don't do this, we're not going to be happy. We're going to be unhappy. We're going to be unfulfilled. We're not going to access pleasure, and our life is going to be terrible. It's going to feel like death, right? I mean, have you tracked the news this week? Like, suicide is up 25% in America. When, when people feel like they have no hope for fulfillment, happiness, or pleasure— they don't even just die passively. Like people want to be happy, fulfilled, and alive so much they'll kill themselves if they can't have it. And it's very serious, right? And then the, on the other side, Jesus says that's the way 
of life with me. But the thing is, when you look at it with your feelings, experience, and emotions, it looks like the way of death. It looks dark, dank. It does not look like it's going to produce any happiness, any fulfillment, or any pleasure. It looks like it's going to create trouble. It's going to ruin your career. It's going to hurt your—like, it's just not going to work. There's no way that's going to work. And so Jesus says, this is the way of death, and this is the way of life. And you look at this one, and it looks like the way of life. And you look at that one, and it looks like the way of death, and you're like, there's no way Jesus is right. And you won't ever make the gut check. You'll just go down what your emotions say the nice lit path is because that looks like life and that looks like death. Now, here's what Jesus actually says. He comes over to this one. He says, listen, the way of sin looks like the way of life, but in the end it produces death, right? James 1, 15 says, sin, when it grows up fully, has the child of death. Right? And so he's, he's not saying sin is immediate death. He's saying, look, if you go down that path, it's going to look great, and in the end it'll lead to death. And then you go, Jesus, that path looks really good. And Jesus says, I just said that. It just said it was going to look like the path of life, but in the end it'll lead to death. And I can tell you some reasons why, but ultimately, that's what I'm saying. And then he takes you the other path, and you're like, Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, the way, the way of the gospel is through the cross. So it's, it's not, it doesn't just look like death, but bring about life. It literally actually brings about death, and then you come back to life through the divine power of resurrection. So it's not even that it looks like death, but is life. It actually will kill you. You will die. And then you'll rise through the divine power of God. Okay? And so you'll be like, but Jesus, that road looks like death. And he'll be, and he says, I just said that. I just said, it doesn't even look like death. It is death. But through that death, there's life. The life of resurrection. Now, if you understand that, then all of your desires and feelings and experience is exactly what Jesus is saying. It's not contradictory to what Jesus is saying. And the only way you can understand that is if you understand that everything functions on the dynamic of death and resurrection. That's why Jesus can say that if you don't look at your life every day as a moment of death and resurrection, you can't be saved. And he can also say that all you need to do to be saved is to believe in him. Those are both true. Believing in him means seeing every single day as a death and a resurrection. You, that you do the dying, and he does the raising to life. And what that looks like is denying yourself in most cases, something that God calls sin, dying to having it, and following Jesus, right? You must die, take up your cross, and follow me. And then following Jesus into whatever path he's taking. And that's what faith is. You see, when you understand it that way, that makes everything really, 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 really clear. Now, you might not like it. It might sound really difficult. But if you already believe in the goodwill of God, that God is the God of the miraculous, he wants good for you. He wants to heal. But the way he heals is through death and resurrection. He wants to change you into a virtuous person. He wants to change you, your life into a life of happiness. He does it through death and resurrection. He wants you to find really deep, meaningful relationships with people. He doesn't want you to be isolated. But he wants you to find those relationships and become that kind of person through death and resurrection. Both literally and metaphorically, because it's literally, you don't literally physically die every day. So Jesus, by definition here, means this sort of 
functionally or dynamically, not just literally. At some point, your faith might lead you to get killed, and you might have to hope in Jesus to raise you from the dead. But here he's talking mostly dynamically. In your life, there will be desires for sin, to go down the road that looks like the road of life that is the road of death. And to not do that feels like a death. It feels like denying yourself life itself. And so if you don't start from a standing point of today, I'm going to die, you're never going to make the gut check. And see, here's what Jesus is basically saying. You can say, that looks like the path of life. That looks like the path of death. Jesus, what's going on? What Jesus is essentially saying is not, I know that looks like the path of life. I'm giving you the real path of life. He's kind of saying that, but here's what he's saying first. Look, you're going to die either way. They're, both paths are the paths of death. Okay? Like, that's not up for debate. You're going to die either way. You got a choice. You can die the septic, pestilence, disease way of long-term sin and ultimate death and damnation. Or you can die sword in your hand facing your opponent and getting killed in the open battlefield bravely next to me, and then I will raise you from the dead. Those are your choices. Pick one. Um— a lot of lists argue that um, The Lord of the Rings is one of the, maybe the best novel of the 20th century. There's a character in, there's two women warriors in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, both Tolkien and Lewis believe that um, women going to war was a terrible thing that shouldn't be done. Men should fight the battles of society, oftentimes because they start them. And so he would not have been for women in the military. This was not like a proto-progressive, like, I think women should fight. You can see this in um, Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, where he gives Lucy a dagger and the vial of healing potion, but says, you shouldn't fight except at extreme need for battles or ugly things, and you shouldn't be in them. And then the woman, older character, he gives a bow to separate her from battle, but recognizing she will be in the fight. Right? It's a metaphor. Now, the reason why in Tolkien and in Lewis there are female warriors is not because they, he thought about army equality. They were against army equality, but this is what they thought. If, if your village is going to get pillaged and everybody murdered, should women act like movies from the 1940s where they like fall, like, oh, something, like, where they have no personal power or self-control, like, they can't even kiss back. It's like, ooh, right? Or when there's nothing else you can do, must they fight like anyone else? Alexi was telling me she was reading this book where they were talking about um, marriage rights in old Germania, where women— the women's family didn't pay a bride price to the male's family. The male had to pay the dowry to the female during the wedding ceremony, and the dowry was the same for everybody. You had to give your wife a spear, a shield, and a sword. That was the dowry, because she was always behind you in a military sense, right? Eowyn in the, in the books says something like, they, they, this is the way they write it in the movie at least. He says, Aragorn is sort of surprised that she has skill with a blade because the other human women from Gondor don't because Gondor is the great walled city. Nobody gets into Gondor. Women never have to fight. But Rohan is different. It's out on this big plain. They're a people of horseback. They don't have fortified cities. And so their towns get pillaged. And so their women learn how to use swords. And she says, we learned a long time ago in this land that women who don't use swords can still die on them. And so in the book— she goes out with the men, but it's not because she wanted to join the army per se. It's because everybody was going to die. 
And she had a choice. She could go out and fight in the battle, or she could die later at her home, but everybody's going to die. So she said, I might as well get on a horse and go out and fight in the battle. And she goes out, and she is both the Savior and she herself dies and is raised from the dead through the healing king. Right? And the idea that Tolkien is trying to get across is he's saying, battle aside, everybody is at war. Right? And everybody has to have a certain kind of ferocity because everybody has to stand in the face of death every single day. Every day you wake up and you die or you don't. If you die nobly, you can be raised or you get sicker. Because there is no path that doesn't go through death. That's why a lot of the great missionaries, they, you know, people say, you know, you're going to go die, like they told John Patton when he was going to go to the New Hebrides. You know, the last missionaries, they ate the minute the people got to shore. This guy said this to John Patton. John Patton's like 23 or something. And he talks, says back to the guy, listen, you're like 60, dude. In like less than eight years, you're probably going to die and be eaten by worms, and I'll have been eaten by people. What's the difference? But that I might attain a better resurrection. Paul says it in a really, a really beautiful way. Worship you guys can come up. In Philippians 3, right, he says, he's talking about what it means to be found in Christ and to know Christ and to belong to Christ and how that, how that affects someone. And he uses the, the, the language of loss or garbage, but you can think of that as burning something to ashes, putting something to death. He says, this is starting in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider as lost for the sake of Christ. Dead to me. Whatever was to my profit, whatever I thought was mine, I now consider dead to me. For the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. I consider it as rubbish or garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so— Okay, this is the most important and so in all of human writings— becoming like him in his death, and so somehow, in a way I don't totally understand, attain the resurrection from the dead. The good news of Jesus Christ is that all of our paths lead through death. The only thing you have in your hands is you get to pick your death. You can follow Jesus into the most noble death possible, walking with him. He does the atoning, but you still die behind him. Because though he dies for you, you have to still die to you. It's the only kind of dying you can do. You can't die for yourself, but you can die to yourself. That's a—I know that's just two prepositions, but it's a huge difference. He will die for you. And he will lead the way to show you how to die to you, but you have to die to you. 
because that is the death that leads to freedom. That is the death that leads to healing. That is the death that leads to joy. That is the death that leads to strength and virtue and a future and a hope. It is the joy that leads to the power of the Spirit that leads you into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is the kind that keeps in step with the Spirit, gives you the mind of Christ, and in a moment, when you understand that, in a moment, everything in the kingdom makes sense. If if you understand that, everything in the kingdom makes sense. That you should be full of humility, not pride, makes perfect sense. That you can't take revenge on other people who Jesus also has died for and wants to follow makes perfect sense. That you may not get a normal life like your neighbors. You may have to make choices they don't have to make. Makes perfect sense. Everything in the kingdom, all the things God calls sin and the things he calls righteousness, they start making perfect sense. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says here. Right after he gets done with all that, you know what the very next line is? All of us then— who are mature should take this view of things. Right? He's literally saying, if your faith, if your faith is lanky, like if you grew up into like believing the miraculous power of God and the moral truth of God and like that that's all there is to it, and you haven't realized that the gospel is about death, about death and resurrection, that the healing power and the moral fulfillment of the gospel comes through participating daily in the death and resurrection of Christ. Denying yourself, being willing to die and follow him and to go his way, right? That will make you mature. It will make you whole. It will make it so you don't hate your spiritual body. It will make you so you're not so depressed about your faith. You won't think anymore there's something fundamentally wrong with your faith. You'll realize that it works. You just have to find in the grace of God the courage to believe it every single day. And that's why the promise—see, some of you do not live groping, hopefully, at the promise of the power of the Spirit. <laughs> You're like, oh, the Holy Spirit's probably with me. No, no, no. You need the Holy Spirit so much because you have to die today. You might die 16 times today. There may be all kinds of different desires that come up that tempt you to that path, and you have to burn that to ashes and pick a different way, and you have to do it again and again and again with joy. You need the Spirit of God. You need to believe in the Jesus that will lead you. You need to believe in the way of the kingdom. You need to embrace the truth of the gospel. You need to believe it right now, right this minute. You need to believe it with the kind of violence and courage that you could stand up to the person you know is going to kill you on the battlefield and take it because you will not die in your bed sick. You will die on the battlefield with Jesus, he die, him dying for you, but you dying to you. And that can happen right now. If you can believe, God is giving you the grace to believe, and you should do it right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, you tell us the truth, and that the news is so good. It's so hard. It's so good. And we thank you that you spent eight chapters of Luke with miracles— and promises so we could know that when you lay this truth on us, it is from a good, loving, healing, caring, positive God who wishes nothing but good for us. So that when we face the difficult truths of reality in you, we know from whom they come. We can follow you up that hill. Give us the faith to do it. Help us to have the courage at this moment and in every renewal moment throughout the day. Help us to be a people who actually have 
faith in Jesus on the basis of the gospel of the kingdom because we know that the kingdom is about the dynamic all the way down of death and resurrection.